Section 11 of An Itinerant House and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Scano. An Itinerant House and Other Stories by Emma Frances Dawson. A Gracious Visitation, Part 3. The mate took the sailor's cards into his ragged fingers with livid patches of nails and set himself to playing solitaire, keeping his air of bluster toward the game and fierce, even in his silence. The day before I was to leave St. Petersburg, said Stroganov, as supercargo on the stormy petrel, a note came inviting me to the theater, signed by an unknown name. Locking my door and lowering my window shades, I dipped a glass brush in a corrosive liquid and wet the paper. The common ink vanished. The page turned blank. Then, like a flock of wild geese trooping across a pale autumn sky, letters in another handwriting rushed into sight. Here was a notice to appear that night at an illegal tea party to be given by our circle at the house of Vasily Botcharov late ataman or leader in a military affair which had failed. This was to talk of and guess at the unknown fate of some members of our circle who had been lost by a late failure, doubtless carried off secretly. I was about to give up this life of constant dread. I would have not gone to Vasily's, but for the hope of persuading my friend Fyodor Bolkachev and his betrothed Nadia Hilkov to also leave the country. They had become too well known as at least sympathizers with the circle. Fyodor was still a legal man, living under his own name, with a genuine passport. But we knew he had been lately watched. He had tarnished his rooms by letting a refugee stay there. Nadia was an aristocratic convert to our circle, had inherited money, and, to divert suspicion, still wore clothing too costly and elegant for one of her views. She looked very beautiful that evening when we three mingled with the dancers at a ball in the Taurida Palace. Her dress was of point lace over primrose satin. Bouquets were held on shoulder and skirt by clusters of diamonds, and there was a string of pearls in her hair. Fyodor was as fine-looking as she. The thin leaning toward me with his eyes intently upon me, pointed to Stroganov. I had a vision of this handsome man, not in his fur palace, but dressed as a military officer. Gold embroidery on his uniform, diamonds on his heavy gold epaulets, buckle, sword hilt, and scabbard, stepping through the stately polonaise with the beauty in the famous half-mile of ballroom and conservatory with twenty thousand wax lights on pillars, on plants, tracing border friezes and outlining arches. Petrov, one of the intermediate class who aid secretly and know movements and addresses of the circle and its friends, said in my ear as he passed in a dance, The wolves are out tonight. This need not mean that they would visit Vasily. In a waltz, Nadia whispered, I met Dudrov Kachensky. Where? I asked anxiously. He was one of our disappeared. On the Nevskoy Prospect, 
swiftly as my carriage passed, he yet made a sign not to speak to him. We could not leave the ball too long before others. The vision fled. Shroganoff wore his pelisse and sat before me. The fin sank back, drawing the long breath of exhaustion. Hours after midnight are especially dangerous, yet Vasily's safety signal in his window awaited our coming. Nothing had been learned of other vanished members. There was still to be removed the official of the fortress who had lately escaped the circle. Such officers know our unbroken law not to follow if they take themselves off. But he boldly stayed, and we had letters from the prisoners complaining of fresh cruelties from him, to decide who should move as our avenging hand. Vasily wrote act on a slip of paper, folded and placed it with many looking like it in a Chinese jar, stirred them as if a careful brew of poison, and offered the bowl to each of us. No sign was made as to which one had drawn the word. I feared Nadia's heightened color betrayed her as its owner. I felt sure she had it when she gave all her jewels to Tchaikov, an old gray beard who had just been to Paris to sell such contributions to the cause and was going again. I urged her and Fyodor to live on the petrol. But, as we say, the mind muddled the reason. They would not hear of it. Tcharkov started all by flinging a big bomb among us. It exploded from the fall into a thousand bits of candy, a French device. Is it ready? he asked. For names of persons or things are left out of the circle. I have to fit the touch holes, that is all, said Vasily. His wary ear caught some sound, which made him snatch the candle from the window, just as Petrov tore up the stairs and burst breathless into the room crying save yourselves the police i managed to murmur to fyodor and nadia come to the ship if you can get there and then we had fled by different ways i doubled and turned through our secret roads passing across gardens and even through houses but as soon as i stepped into a main street i was stopped and twenty-four hours later was on my way to siberia none of our circle were in my gang of prisoners there was no way to learn whether they were in some other lot or were not caught. To ask them would bring them into danger they might have eluded. So with torture about them for my close companion, I crossed that awful desert where villages show like mustard seeds, scattered so far in the white waste. To escape would only to die by hunger or by wolves. Even the few trees hold their branches in gestures of fear and despair, softened only by powder and filigree of snow from a low sky of unbroken grey. The great post-road was punishment enough. I was saved from work in the Nerchinsk mines. I met in Siberia a high official who, on account of old family obligations, secretly helped me to join, in disguise, a tea caravan returning to China. Another journey of week after week, that long land route to Shanghai, by sleigh through Siberia, camel through Tartary, boat and mule through China. But now a sense of freedom gave me strength, uncertain what to do, worry in mind and body. I wandered to Nagasaki, and then to Honolulu, where I lingered, not knowing that I waited to see, with amazement, the arrival of the petrol. 
to hear the story of the captain of the Polly, and to walk up on his left and say, I was the supercargo of that ship. I steps up on the captain's right, said the gruff Dmitrovich, and I says to him, says I, I was the second mate. Furious with himself about his game, he sat glowering at the cards. Stroganoff had gone to the piano and was softly playing. Then, said the captain, I sold the jolly Polly at the chance of salvage claim for the stormy petrol. We all had a touch of cholera, and there was not much left of us when we reached San Francisco. Thank you, I said. How I wish I could have seen what the lady had written. The captain drew from his pocket a folded paper, yellow with age and blue with damp, opened it, and read to me an appeal from the poor lady to her lost lover. The undercurrent of Strogonoff's music made it seem very touching. It has the stress of Mascagni's intermezzo, I cried, and he never knew. That is, as it may be, said Volokhov. We cannot tie and unite knots in the thread of destiny, said Strogonoff. It leaves the story so incomplete, I said. But that is real life, or is it that our glimpse is uncertain? Life is a bungled voyage anyhow, growled Dmitrovich. By the time you get the hang of your sealed orders, you're too nigh port to set your course different, and you're sure to wish you could. He was in another fume over solitaire, glaring at cards, and Ivan, till the poor boy ran out. What a man is to know would be sure to reach him, said Volokhov. We have a story of a captain who put to sea without paying a debt contracted on a relic of the cross. A storm arose, which he claimed by throwing overboard a chest with the money, which floated safely to the claimant. He was to receive it. It could be sent recklessly. As we say, said Stroganoff, what must be, must be. Now, she's dead, I said sadly. What is being dead? cried the Finn, with indifferent air, looking at me with pity through that veiled gaze of his onyx eyes, always looking in rather than out. If we only knew, I cried. Creations of one kingdom, marine, animal or vegetable, said Volokhov, frequently imitate those of another. So, the spiritual body is often born with the mockery of physical blindness and deafness. The pole had glided into a strain by Chopin. You are the only one, I said. I ever heard interpret that angelic voice as I do. It is not grieving, but comforting. I brought him my rhymes about it. Title, Funeral March by Chopin. Here muffled throb of the heavy hearts, helpless and terrified, death like a wind, blowing fragile web of their affairs aside, tore it and tattered and dashed it to earth, stunned, aghast, they chide, merged in the one or transfigured self. What and where is the dead? Death is a sphinx. In vain, life has put ear to its lips and pled blank desert space and maybe no more though all were to be read all of the body once 
are met how should the spirit famish yet its thoughts were dream and visions pearled for its delight there lies unfurled transcendent beauty of the world though but pontoon to bear ye hurled above what dizzy deep on deep below illimitable sleep through vastness ye in grandeur sweep yet fear and question yearn and weep the answers in your longings leap what know ye where earth wheels in flight thrown by one of the shapes of might that weave the stars in web of light what on the moon's far side is lain why tide of wind and sea complain how thunder roars in rolling wane a burst of sobs through tears of rain why sap in weed or pine tree vain stirs winding as to piper strain how one loam yieldeth balm and bane could i change when the mere plum spray and grafted on the peach may stay an individual branch nay nay that great law moveth not astray i still am i shall be alway and i then gone because unseen though not when wall might intervene yet nature warns mark shrivel cower the clematis the orchid dower of hidden strength awaiting hour the deathless resurrection flower footnote south american one which the writer's family has had nearly forty years looks like a ball of brown evergreen english walnut size but expands to a saucer-like lily whenever put in water though wide the field of night and deep the dark no sickle moon may reap the dawn-flushed clouds in radiance heap foreshadowing so round ye creep but dull to miracle ye keep for of the hints that hide and peep how great is this ye rise from sleep here leaden beat of the hapless hearts sullen rebellious tried none know the truth's rapt exaltation or who could here abide yet voice of tender vibration now this is their thought as they glide the dragging worm in his cloak of fur knows not of overheard he too must follow his kin wrap himself in a dying bed what beauty rises what joy on inaudible wings outspread he read it aloud he and volokhov looked at each other and then at me they spoke together you are right mrs trevelyan ivan came in muttering sechas sechas means directly directly dmitrievich muttered back they'll all have to belay that talk again that meaning glance ran around among them volokhov rose saying vladimir son of stroganov it is time the clumsy bulk of dmitrievich in my room filled with frail treasures made this stand by to go about as he rose seemed needful 
we had the last round of tea with the general Bostrovich. Or here's to you. Mrs. Trevelyan, pardon a long stay, said Stroganoff, with that unseen motion that gives play to the palace, crosses, doubles, and clasps it around the body, which it swats mummy-like. You are not likely to see us again, said Volokhov. We shall not forget you, said Ivan. Dmitrievich loomed over me in an effort to be gentle that was yet alarming. Recollect, he said, if your ship is ever in irons on a lee shore, the Russians will come to the rescue. You will hear us spoken of tomorrow, said the captain. I am glad you came, said I. I am sorry for exiles. That word is not used in Russia, said the supercargo. We say, and please remember us as involuntary emigrants. Sometimes you get in the midst of a hurricane and your masts going over the side before you knows it, darkly hinted the big mate. But don't you be afeard. Just think of yourself as safe right now. Five battle not bombs of Bombay. Think of the marooned, said the Finn. I opened the doors. They passed out, bowing. The boy gave me the comforting cry of the sea watch. All's well! The monkey, impressed by all this leave-taking, took off his tiny cap to me. But the lurch of the sailor's shoulder forced him to hastily put it on and clutch his master's collar. They filed off into the darkness from whence they came. The mate questioned, Na pravi? Translation, to the right. The captain ordered, Na leva? Translation, to the left. And away they went. As their steps went down into Jones Street, their voices rose with true swinging deep sea roll in other lines of that old, old chant spread from Breton fishermen to sailors of all countries. The north wind, the north wind, the north wind came on to blow. Farther and farther, fainting away in the mysterious night, like a salt breath of mid-ocean or cries of seabirds over the lonely deep, a concentration of the poetry and color of a calling filled with the sublime symbolism of air and sea. So I lost my friends. I have never seen them since. But in nights of storm, I have fancied I heard on gusts of wind their voices cheering me from afar with, We are two, we are three, we were three mariners. There was such a sense outdoors of the night being far gone that I drew in and locked the door, thinking, It must be too late now to visit that poor caretaker. To decide, I looked at the hall clock. It was past two. I slept late next day, only roused at noon by long and loud knocking at the front and back door, even upon the windows. I hurried into a wrapper and opened the front door. Who were these urgent callers with eager, anxious faces exclaiming as if relieved, Here she is! And, She is here! And crowding upon my steps. Not only neighbors, but policemen and reporters, and some of my friends from the mission Hayes Valley and Oakland. They looked at me with an air of doubting that they really saw me. You were alive then, a reporter said, and a two or three of my friends began to cry. Why not? said I. Why do you come like this? A policeman spoke. 
the houses on each side of you were broken into last night and robbed, and the caretaker of the fine house was brutally murdered. It was lucky for you, said the neighbor, that you had a party. You were mistaken, I said. Well, your house was lighted in every window, up and down, back and front, said another. Was this the reason of Ivan's running about? And we heard music, said the third neighbor. Nothing else could have saved you, said the fourth. Lots of folks know about your valuable curios. I could not believe my kindly pink-cheeked blondes were in league with those criminals. I explained nothing. The reporters went off in a huff. One of my friends took me home with her. Others insisted upon coming to stay with me at night. It was late in the afternoon when I left my friend, a sea captain's wife living on Telegraph Hill. I came down Greenwich Street and was looking over at the green and gray of the Russian church, thinking of Pushkin's St. Petersburg, under a pale green sky, weariness, chill, and granite, when the Russian priest came up the steps at the corner of Washington Square. Mrs. Trevelyan, he cried, in a city of battle, murder, and sudden death, you are yet safe. Thank heaven. Safe, too, by a call from some of your countrymen, said I, and told the story. Stroganoff, he cried, as if stunned, and made me repeat the tales told by the supercargo and the boy. He grew younger as he listened, with his eyes on fleecy clouds in the west. Poor Nadia, he murmured. I had not yet told her name. The long slope northward of Russian Hill rose sharp-edged with light from an amber sunset, but that was not the gleam I saw on his face. The slope is like the graceful flank of a mastodon, and, with the house on the brink of Vallejo Street overhanging Taylor, reminded me of the children's drawing on a slate, where a house in the left upper corner has a path leading from and to it, undulating until it forms an animal with the house for its head. The Latin quarter at this hour is like a deserted village, but one or two passers-by greeted the priest as Batushka, or father. One old man, more intimate, said, Good evening, Fyodor. The story was complete, I thought. We went down into the square to cross by the diagonal path. The lady's poem, he said with a sigh. If I could only have read it. I remember it, said I. We sat on a bench near the great willow, and I repeated the lines as if another voice spoke through me. Title, A Cry in the Dark. Oh, if I knew, if I knew, if I knew, against flood tide of grief and dread and smart, how prove my faithful love by what sure art the judgment day I shall forget to rue. If it but bring us face to face, we too, hear me, though in abysmal broken heart, on pinnacle of joy unpraised apart, or here, unseen, the while I weep for you. Who shall forbid my message? It should leap, the wreck of worlds, black chaos, touch with glow, cloud drift of spirits in tumultuous flow. Your thought in sudden lift and splendor steep, I call to you 
from my soul's utmost deep. Now, if you know, if you know, if you know, the priest's face shone. The kindling of an inner light had grown into radiance. We left the square following Powell Street and turned up Vallejo, where the Russian hill seemed to rise to meet and listen to us, abruptly towering over us, dark, sinister, even with its lanterns, like a ladder of light for several almost upright blocks. It took the part of a third person in our talk, one who knew most. The dog howl whistle of one of our men of war pierced the air. I thought of the erect bearing of Volokov and Stroganov. Is there a Russian man of war in port? I asked. No, he replied, nor any Russian vessels. The hill loomed nearer, higher. The street lights wavered, as if the wisest one of our trio drew breath. We turned up Mason Street, for I must skirt the steep hill. There are no Russian sailors here now. Would you be sure to know? Certain. They do nothing new without burning a taper before a saint in church. We crossed Broadway, and a few steps southward, paused and looked back. I was to call here for my friends who were going to stay with me. Come to church tomorrow, he said, and I will give you a mulliben. What's that? Prayer, chant, and the burning of incense. A service for thanksgiving to your garden angel. You had a night watch to keep you. Even in the dimness, I could see that sudden look of youth still wrapping him like a mantle. Aloft, over tightly packed roofs, rising high, crowding north and west above the Spanish church, the last street light of the great hill flared as if out of the sky. From our almost diagonal view across the block, there looked no road to what seemed a friendly sign from hidden guard. I ask what I had not before thought of. Why do they call it Russian Hill? Oh, you have not been here long. You do not know, he replied. His right hand was on his breast. I saw the third and little finger drew into the palm in the Russian sign of the cross. Years ago, before I fled from the Nerchinsk mines, they buried on that hill five unknown Russian sailors. End of section 11 Recording by Mary Scarnow